If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. As we have the privilege of getting back to our, our study through the letter to the Hebrews. This morning we are specifically looking at verses 12 and 13. As you're finding the passage, though, I want to begin in verse 11. Please follow along as I read from God's word. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hear the word of the Lord. As we jump back into our study, just by way of reminder, in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, there has been a theme introduced to us as we've been reading and studying the theme is a rest is available for God's people. A rest for the people of God. And if you have come to share in Christ, then there is God's restful salvation of forgiveness and hope now being united with Christ by faith and the good news of God's rest that comes to believers as a promise. There's the already and the not yet. And the not yet, as we've looked at chapter 4, is what's being presented or held in front of those who are persevering, those who, who believe and are striving, being diligent to enter God's rest. It is for those who walk not by sight, but by faith. Here, Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And we hear this, this charge or command again and again to make every effort, strive to enter that rest. And so that positions the, the recipients of this letter, the hearers, the believers, uh, before rather than after the act of entering into God's rest. Verse 11, this, the verse says that if we are not diligent to enter God's rest, then we are following an example of disobedience. We should all ask, well, Whose example? And the example that we've been reading about in, in chapters 3 and 4 is the example given of the Israelites in the wilderness. And these are some of the descriptions of those people who did not enter God's rest. 
They have gone astray in their hearts. They have rebelled. They have sinned. They have been disobedient. And then we actually get in chapter 3, verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That, that is the, the judgment upon the Israelites who wandered through the wilderness. A judgment of unbelief. They received good news, but the message did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who believed, those who listened. Now, if you're still kind of vaguely tracking with the people of Israel in the wilderness, Joshua and Caleb are the examples of those who lived by faith and entered. They went in, and they were in the same position as those who failed. They, they all received the good news. They all received God's word. But the Israelites who failed, they failed based off of unbelief, not trusting and not believing in, in God and his, his word. They received the same revelation of the, of the Lord that, that Joshua and, and Caleb did. They enjoyed some of the same advantages as the two faithful men. But what separated them from those who failed to enter was that Joshua and Caleb believed God's word. They believed the promises that God would lead them into Canaan. And as we look at Hebrews 3 and 4, we see this stressing the importance of how one responds to God's word. How one responds to God's word. To enter this great and joyful rest, we must trust God's word. We must believe God's word. Even when, according to our physical eyes, it does not seem likely that things are going the way we thought they should. We do not live by sight, but by faith. So believing God and trusting him is how we determine whether or not we are responding faithfully or appropriately to, to God's word. We're told also in these chapters, because sin is so deceitful, we are to take care and to strive. The word that we find here in verse 11 of our passage today, we're, we're honing in on 12 and 13, but we have to look at verse 11. That word strive means to concentrate one's energies on the achievement of a goal. This kind of diligence is the opposite of the attitude or posture that characterized the first generation of the Israelites. The word in other places talks about them presuming upon God's grace. Not being diligent and striving. And so I, I want us to start here. There is a call for a seriousness and intensity to the Christian life. We've made mention of this before. This call to respond in repentance and faith in Christ, receiving him by faith, is not a call then to just throw your hands up and live this life of passivity. 
We're like, okay, I've experienced the grace of God and now I can just kind of let loose and let go and live. And that is not at all the DNA of what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ, what it looks like to have true biblical faith in Scripture. Rather, we are called to take care, take heed, listen and respond, strive with diligence, pressing towards uh, pressing on to enter that rest. And, and just so we don't get confused in this idea of what makes us right before God, we are told in these chapters, because Christ has made us his own, we are then called to take heed and to strive to enter that rest. I hope you see that very important distinction. Because Christ has redeemed you, Therefore, now we are called to live a life that strives and, and, and seeks to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in us. This call for a seriousness and intensity in the Christian life, um, I think is described well with this illustration. While at St. John's College in Cambridge, a young man by the name of Henry Martin sat under the preaching of Charles Simeon. He was the vicar of Holy Trinity Church for 54 years, 1782 through 1836, he served there. And a revival of biblical Christianity took place in Cambridge during his ministry. Over 1,100 future ministers of the Anglican Church sat under Charles Simeon's ministry and would eventually assume many pulpits throughout England. Gospel missionaries from Cambridge went all around the world, sent out from that ministry there in Cambridge. A deep friendship developed between these two men, and Charles Simeon invited Henry Martin to become his assistant. Through the influence of Simeon's ministry and reading the diary of missionary David Bernard, or Brainerd, Martin became burdened for the souls of men and women in foreign lands who were without the light of the gospel. He chose to go to India, becoming a chaplain for the East India Company. Martin arrived in Calcutta in April 1806, and he would die in Turkey less than seven years later at the age of 31. Henry Martin commissioned a portrait of himself prior to leaving Calcutta for Persia. And it was sent to his beloved friend, Charles Simeon, who placed it above his fireplace in his study at King's College, Cambridge. And Simeon would show it to his friends as they came in, and he would say, See that blessed man. No one looks at me as he does. He never takes his eyes off me and seems always to be saying, The years are short. Be serious. Be in earnest. Don't trifle. Don't trifle. Then Simeon would add, and I won't trifle. I won't trifle. Verses 12 and 13, our text today, is in a sense saying, don't trifle with the word of God. Be serious about living under its power. With the earnestness of Henry Martin, strive to enter God's rest. 
This is kind of the anthem through chapters 3 and 4. Give heed to the word of God. Do not harden your heart. Wake up from the deceitfulness of sin. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our great confession. Hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. What we will see in these two verses is that the word of God powerfully penetrates with perfect precision to the core of all of us and lays us bare before God to whom we must give account. And so let's look at verse 12. It begins, for the word of God is living and active. The author of Hebrews in verse 12 shows the nature of God's word. It is living and active. In chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles open, in verse 7, we hear a passage from Psalm 95 written by David But the way in which it is told to us in verse 7, it is the Holy Spirit saying, in the present tense, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Please hear this. Hearing the word is hearing God himself. We hear in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. It is living or filled with life. The life of the word is no less than the life of God himself. For as God is, so must his word be. I wonder when you open up your Bibles in the morning, maybe for your quiet time, are you aware that it is living and active. This is not just opening up the Reader's Digest or another book that you have found to be really thought-provoking. There is no other book like the Bible. It is God's holy word. God's word comes to us in the power of the Spirit. It is alive and it is active. It does something when it goes forth. It shall accomplish God's purposes here from Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Because the word of God lives and abides forever, 1 Peter 1.23, its potency remains undim- undimished throughout time. It's not as if just for a period of time it was powerful and effective exhaustively for all time. God's word is potent, and it remains so. Believers, I pray, discover with Martin Luther that the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. The Bible is not some antique, or is it some modern thing. It is eternal. The Bible is not like any other book The power of God is found in the word of God. The author of Hebrews leaves us without any doubt as to the efficacy of scripture. The power and potency, it actually accomplishes all that God intends it to accomplish. The late Dr. R.C. Sproul would frequently observe 
that one of the biggest problems in the church today is that people are looking for power everywhere except the place God has put it, his word. If we want to find power for persevering faith, this striving to enter into God's rest, putting sin to death, growing in Christ, it will come only as we attend diligently to God's word. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So in the time of the writing of Hebrews, Roman soldiers typically would be, would be equipped with two swords. Clearly on the battlefield, it would be a much larger sword. So just think back to our study through 1 Samuel. You think about David coming upon Goliath's large sword, kind of like the Excalibur, a very large sword to go out into battle. That was one sword. But there was also another sword that they would carry on their, on their side, on their hip. And that's actually the same word that's used in verse 12. And so this sword, Makaria, or later a gladius, it was like more of like an 18-inch long sword used in close combat. Both sides of the blade were extremely sharp. It was a two-edged sword. And to use that word in this particular context, in helping us understand God's word, the word of God never fails to cut. There is no blunt side to God's word. And if you think about a two-sided blade that is extremely sharp in close combat, able to slice and pierce wherever it needs to, there's both when we think now about that, that pointing us into in, understanding God's word. God's word has one side that is a, a side of saving, so to speak, to penetrate uh, unbelievers' hearts, and another side for judging. So the saving aspect, listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 63, for example. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Or when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, after proclaiming the gospel, when they heard this, the gospel, the word of God going forth, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? There is a sharp edge to the word of God that penetrates to a, a hard heart when the gospel goes forth accompanied by the Holy Spirit and even the most impenetrable hardened heart stands no chance in the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The power of the word to pierce and split wide open a hard heart and respond like the people responded when God had taken hold of them, what must we do to be saved? And then there's also the judging side. If one side was giving life, the word, another side brings judgment. John 12, 48 is a good example. The one who rejects me does not receive my words. That person has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. 
the word of God pierces and divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is a penetrating nature. The sword, the word of God, pierces. The mention of the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, is intended, and I don't want us to miss this, it's intended to highlight how powerful and life-changing the word of God truly is. The word searches and exposes and divides all of us. So think about this. The, the descriptive words used here by the author, inspired by the Spirit of God, the deepest elements of our physical frame is represented by joints and marrow, things that we cannot see. The deepest elements of our immaterial makeup, soul and spirit, they're describing the inner man, so to speak, and the deepest elements of our mental activity, the epicenter of, uh, of our lives, our hearts, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I think this is helpful in understanding what verse 12 is trying to emphasize and what I don't think that, that it's trying to emphasize. So it is common in Scripture for an author to accumulate a pile of terms to express a complete idea, completeness. We see this in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, where Jesus declared, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. A very familiar passage to most of us. No one should conclude from that statement that we as humans, mankind, are comprised then of four separate parts, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's, that would not be a proper interpretation of the, the completeness of we are to love God with our whole being point that the author is making. So I pray that this is a purposeful digression here, but I know a lot of people have taken a passage like Hebrews 4, chapter 12, and have created an understanding of the way man is uh, made up, the qualities or aspects of humanity. So they would read this passage and hear, okay, there's a description of body, the joints and marrow, and then there's also this distinction between, I think, being made between soul and spirit. Therefore, man is made up of body, soul, and spirit, three parts. That, that would be a conclusion that many have made from a passage like this and, and some others. What I want to lay out, hopefully clearly, and uh, just in, in a few minutes, the Bible teaches that human beings are created by God with two essential parts. So the first category that I mentioned would be called trichotomy. What I'm trying to show you is a dichotomy view of humanity, a two-part, a body and soul. This is the dichotomous view. It's clearly seen in Genesis 2-7 where the Bible records, then the Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The reality of body and soul makes humanity distinct from any other creature in the world. And the New Testament we see Jesus make clear a person's dual qualities when he admonishes, and I think this, 
This should hold a lot of weight. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. A careful study of Scripture shows that God, God's word uses the words like soul and spirit interchangeably. We see expressions that are most familiar to us as body and soul or flesh and spirit being referenced throughout the New Testament. And so a key to interpreting this passage and not losing sight of where the author is driving us to is really to look at the word division in verse 12. Nowhere is it a separation from one entity from another. So if you think about a singular entity like a kingdom or an inheritance being divided up, well, that, that's one entity being divided up. The word of God pierces to the core of who we are. This is what the author is driving home. The reference to joints and marrow likely is just emphasizing the physical frame, the outer man. Furthermore, joints and marrow, if you really think about this, are not together such that a sharp sword is needed to get in between them and divide them or separate them. So the point then, according to one that we can trust, John Murray says this, this verse is to show that no aspect of our being is resistant to the penetrating scrutiny of the word of God. That's, that's the main emphasis here. God's word is such a, has such a penetrating nature that nothing of man, the deepest aspects of man, is hidden from him or from it. I hope that helps a little bit in seeing man as body and soul. It is important to note that when we talk about the nature of God's word, when we see in scripture that it is able to, to discern in verse 12, and, and then it points us to the heart, a discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, this again is helping us see the penetrating nature of just how comprehensive God's word drives into our, 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 our core. Uh, the heart, when we hear and see heart in scripture, this is all aspects of spiritual, moral, emotional. There is nothing hidden from God's word. Also, when we think about our hearts, we need to understand this. We are our worst critics, not because we are too hard on ourselves, but because we don't really know ourselves. We are our worst critics and our worst judge because our standards are not in accord with God's standards. Here's a question for you to think. Do you honestly think that you know yourself well enough to discern the motives of your heart? John Calvin and others used to call, refer to the heart as a labyrinth. Our hearts are, are, are mazes. Even when you look at them, you can't quite figure them out. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We value ourselves more highly than we ought. And if you don't recognize this, you even more so need to have an encounter with the word of God. 
We think our motives are better than they really are. And the reality is we can't even detect our own pride. God's word can, and it does. It can sort out this maze of our hearts. It is the word of God that is the great discerner and great discoverer of what is really going on inside of our hearts. And so please hear this. What rescues us from deception is the word of God. Again, the word searches and exposes and divides all of us. The deepest elements of our physical frame, joints and marrow, the deepest elements of our immaterial makeup, soul and spirit, and the deepest elements of our mental activity, thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is exhaustive. And then we look at verse 13. I want you to hear this verse again. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This verse should terrify you. If you really understand whose eyes are upon us at all times in every place, it should leave you shuddering. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient, all-knowing. He is omnipresent, always present, everywhere and at all times. And as technology advances and computers have more and more capabilities, like chat GPT, GPT and other AI, please know it pales in comparison to God's complete knowledge of everything. His perfect knowledge is exhaustive of all past, present, and future. The God who sees our hidden inner life is a judge who will not be deceived by pious appearances. Now, as you're, as you're thinking about verse 13, I'm sure many of us over the last several days have been very concerned about foreign objects floating above our land, right? You've probably spent a lot of time thinking about that and strategies that the government should have employed. And all that is right and, and fine. But today, my friends hearing this, I want to ask you, how concerned are you in a surveillance from the one whose eyes see everything? Is that even on your mind as you go about your day? whether it's in front of others or behind closed doors? Are you mindful that one day you will give account? Nothing is hidden from his sight. We all hope that what we do in secret might or may be overlooked or not observed. And for the teens sitting here today, I want you to hear me. It is possible for you to fool your parents. Maybe for you to even fool your Christian friends. It's possible for you to fool your pastors, your elders. But you need to understand that it is impossible to fool God. The eyes of the Lord are laid upon every thought, every sinful motive, every word, every deed, done by you. 
by all of us. All of us are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, you, you might just be sitting there terrified and it's hard to kind of shake you out of that. If you are outside of Christ, that is exactly where you need to be this morning. As much as the idea of being laid bare before God, naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account is a terrifying thought, I want you to hear this morning that what is being offered What we're about to get to in chapter 4, a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God's mercy and grace, sheer grace, that this all-seeing divine judge has provided for guilty rebels his only begotten son. Through Jesus Christ's personal person and work, he has accomplished salvation for sinners. It's, what's to, it's, it's what is referred to as the great exchange, where our sin, our guilt, our shame is imputed to Christ. If that's a big word that you don't understand, imputation is attributing something good or bad to someone and dealing with that person in light of that imputation. Our sin, guilt, and shame has been imputed to Christ, and his perfect righteousness is imputed to us who believe and repent of our sins and receive him by faith. That's that great exchange that is offered to those who all fall into the category of unbelief and disobedience, but because of what Christ has worked upon the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection, there is now an offer for there to be a a standing before God. Now think about the description. We are naked, We are laid before God, the one who sees all things. And when you truly understand the gospel that is being offered through Jesus Christ, we no longer stand naked. In Christ, we are clothed with a perfect righteousness, his righteousness that's been imputed to us. And so where you were once naked and ashamed, you actually have the privilege and gift of standing before God justified because of what Christ has has accomplished and clothed in his perfect righteousness. Please hear me this morning. If you are trusting, belief is trusting in Christ and God alone. If you are trusting in anything other than the perfect righteousness of Christ for a right standing with God, it will be exposed as unbelief. And truly, you are not ready for Calvary's cross until you have been laid bare and the word of God has really revealed the depth of your sin and depravity. Until you see clearly your need for a savior, the gospel will not be sweet to you. You you may just think it's just another thing that you can add to your life. It is everything to your life. May this be the day of salvation. I want to end with a quote from Philip Hughes in his commentary of Hebrews. He says this, Man's knowledge, even of his own self, is faulty and inadequate. And wisdom begins in his recognition of this fact 
and in the prayer that God therefore will search him and know him and reveal to him the true depths of his depravity and also the wonders of his divine grace. The man who acknowledges that he is now and he will hereafter be naked and exposed to the eyes of the one with whom we have to reckon and that the discernment of God is always without error and his judgment righteous and equitable is a man who is standing on the threshold of divine grace, the grace of God which in Christ brings forgiveness and victory is most particularly displayed. And it is to this theme that our author is about to turn, which is verses 14 through the end of the chapter. And so, Lord willing, I look forward to digging into Jesus Christ, our great high priest, next Lord's Day. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. Father, we thank you that the Holy Spirit will continue to convict us of sin until sin is no more. And the tool that he uses is the word. Father, we thank you that your word is the most powerful, penetrating, and accurate mirror. The constant confrontation of this mirror in our lives is actually one of the most loving and gracious gifts that you have given to us. Father, we desperately need your word to shine light on the shiny back roaches of sin, masquerading as satisfying pleasures in our hearts. Father, do a work that only you can do by the power of the Spirit through your word. And may we respond to your word in a way that pleases and honors you this day. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.